Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Ask the Zamboni Experts podcast. I'm the host today, Marty Elliott, a sales account representative with Zamboni Company in Canada. And today's guest is Terry Pichet, who is the Technical Director of the Ontario Recreation Facilities Association, or commonly known as ORFA. And today's topic uh, that uh, Terry's going to be uh, discussing with me is the top 10 considerations for ice rink post-COVID-19 reignition. A great topic, definitely timely. We're not sure when this is going to happen, when rinks are going to open, but I have no doubt Terry's going to give us some great insight and suggestions on some of the things that our user groups or our operators need to uh, pay attention to moving forward. A little bit of an intro uh, from Terry's uh, history. Uh, Total of 40 years, I believe, Terry, you've been in the industry. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, 20 in the municipality world, and then 20 years with uh, uh, with Orfa as technical director. Uh, I think he started in 2000, if I'm not mistaken. You're exactly right, my friend. There we go. There we go. Well, Terry, um, today's uh, podcast, we're going to be touching base on the top 10 considerations for ice rink post-COVID-19 re. Ignition, I believe we would refer to. Is that correct, Terry? Sounds good to me. All right, all right. Well, we're going to get some great insights on uh, what uh, arena managers and operators need to uh, be aware of uh, post uh, COVID 19 uh, when they're ready to open up their arenas, when we uh, get green light from our provincial bodies. And uh, let me ask you, uh, Terry, what might the rink industry look like once they reopen? If I had that answer, Marty, I'd be rich. Well, all I can suggest, all I can suggest to you is that I'm fairly confident it's probably not going to look anything like it did look when we shut down uh, very quickly in March. There's definitely going to be a shift in direction, and I have uh, come up with a new term that I've been using when I talk to my members, and I refer to it affectionately as the disinfection anxiety syndrome that both our workers and our users are going to have when they come back inside our buildings. We we can appreciate that the complexity and the, and the different uh, structures of recreation facilities uh, across North America and beyond, and, and, and none of them are exactly the same. So, what it's going to look like is yet to be designed. Um, the interesting thing is, is that today's practitioner is going to have an opportunity to uh, play a role on designing how the industry is going to look going into the future. This was something that was always on the radar, but now is going to be very front and center in regards to the way that we're going to conduct business as an industry moving forward. So that'll be interesting to see uh, how this unfolds uh, because it's going to be designed on the fly uh, based on um, individual success stories and uh, potentially failures in regards to the way that individuals tried to operate. So uh, we're going to monitor it uh, as an association, as as I suspect uh, other associations will and try to pass along uh, whatever knowledge comes along. What I what I do predict, or what we do predict is going to increase is uh, cleaning and disinfection of our facilities. And the time that I've spent inside the industry, I can suggest to you that I've seen some really good concentrated efforts in regards to the way that a building is being maintained 
and others uh, I refer to as uh, getting a lick and a promise, basically meaning that they're coming in at the end of the shift and they're making the dressing room look presentable for the next morning shift and really no cleaning and disinfection had taken place. And what's going to happen is that people that work in, in recreation facilities, some of them were very much in tune in regards to the difference between cleaning and disinfection, which are two totally different procedures. What everybody's going to learn is the importance of cleaning prior to disinfecting. So I think that'll be part of the uh, the legacy as we move along here. What we can expect is that our users are going to be more in tune in regards to uh, germs and viruses and, and other things that lurk in public facilities. And what can't be lost here is COVID-19 is in fact uh, only one of a long list of things that we've dealt with uh, as an industry when it comes to these type of uh, community infections that uh, we've had to deal with. Uh, most of uh, the listeners would have either encountered or had somebody that has come in contact with athlete's foot not a not a virus that's going to kill you but one that will grow inside a facility that if it's if it's not properly maintained or cleaned this right. uh this virus has definitely taken us to a, a different uh, different level so so let me ask you terry um how how involved do you foresee the provincial um uh, breakdown of the municipalities uh setting up an sop if you will when it comes to cleaning and disinfecting um, is that something that uh, our, our organization, uh, ORFA, will uh, have a role in as far as suggestions, or do you see something totally different to moving forward? The, uh, the reality, Marty, is that uh, we're not going to change anything that we've been doing as an association. We may be fine-tuning some of the, the products and information that we've had available, but in reality, the association has been trying to get this uh, this type of attitude built into our, our members' operations uh, for the last 25 years. This is just going to give us an opportunity to put it on a whole brand new platform. So, I mean, there, there's lots of debate in regards to what works and what doesn't work in regards to opening up uh, businesses or North America, uh, having it come back to life. And uh, it's it's going to be um, uh, difficult for us to come up with one plan that in fact is going to move forward. And I, I try to explain to individuals that they may not like the government involvement right now in regards to trying to control the way that we as people move about uh, our worlds. And, and I can understand some of the dissension uh, in regards to people being controlled by the government. But what they need to grasp is this. Currently, governments are accepting the majority of the risks that are associated with what's happening inside the world and they're trying to control it the best that they can and yeah they're making mistakes but in the end when they finally start to open up and we start to come back to life there's going to be a transfer of risk from uh, all levels of provincial and federal governments uh, down to the uh, municipalities and then ultimately on to uh, the uh, uh, each uh, individual facility operator so we've right. got to be prepared to accept that risk and there there's not they're going to give us direction to open but they don't have in my opinion the tools to drill down deep into every silo of, of operations in our province and say this is the way you're going to function they're, they're going to give us general directions in regards to wash your hands and disinfection uh, principles but we're going to have to dissect them uh, in our industry to say what works and what doesn't work. 
So would it be fair to say then, Terry, from a provincial standpoint, a government body, they're going to be looking at uh, the provincial organizations across our country. Uh, would it be fair to say that uh, they're going to be looking for the input from uh, ORFA or um, uh, British Columbia, Alberta? Will they be, do you foresee that happening where they're going to come back to you folks to kind of put the guidelines in place? Well, that, this is an interesting juncture, Marty, because uh, listeners need to understand is that as much as they lean on the ORFA or USIRA or any of the other provincial and territorial associations to provide them with guidance, realistically, all we're doing is being the gatekeeper of their information. Uh, ORFA is, is seven staff members that basically lean on our 7,000 plus members to provide us with the information and direction of what works and what doesn't work. We, we don't have the insight expertise. We're not engineers. We're not, we're, we're, we, we, we don't have the, the ability to be able to come up with uh, clear directions on how uh, every aspect of, of making things better is going to work in every operation. So what we do is we scavenge from our members well, their success stories, what, what works and what doesn't work. And then what we try to do is filter it out and say, okay, here's some best practices. They may or may not work in your operations for many different reasons. And that's what makes it complicated uh, in regards to opening up under one plan. We can't do that. Every operation is under, under different constraint, uh, constraints. It may be financial, it may be staffing, uh, it may be building and design, and it may be how the users have got control of these uh, of these facilities. So uh, it, it'll be an interesting experiment to see how we open things up. Definitely, definitely it will. I mean, which leads me to the next question as far as the government regulations uh, in respect to creating and maintaining a safe recreational environment. I mean, where does where does that footprint come from? I mean, how how are they going to be able to based on uh, structures, uh, bricks and mortar, every, every arena is different, if you will. There's community centers, uh, there's single pad facilities, multi-pad facilities. I mean, how are they going to be able to put something in play uh, for a safe environment post-COVID-19? Uh, They're not... Uh... Marty, that, that's as simple as I can make it. That, right. uh, we've had members approach us and say, look, can we expect more governments, more regulations, more codes, more acts that are going to be put into place? And my simple answer is I highly doubt it. I mean, all, all of the regulations and codes and acts that are required to maintain a safe public facility already exist. Can we expect a higher level of potential policing uh, in regards to these uh, obligations? Most likely, I, I suspect that public health departments and other agencies that are responsible for public health will become more aggressive uh, in regards to their responsibilities to ensure that there are checks and balances and there are policies, procedures and, and processes in place in all public facilities, not just for recreation. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak to the Zamboni family here and we're focusing on ice rinks, but in our province and, and across the country, most of our staff are cross-trained. They go from cutting ice to cutting grass and back again. So they're dealing with aquatic issues, they're dealing with playgrounds, they're dealing with all the other infrastructure that sometimes is a sidebar because we're not just one dimensional uh, in the province usually when it comes to uh, recreation. ICE is uh, basically where we started, but we've expanded into so many other environments. So th th this will be interesting to see how the different operations overlap each other to try and determine how we're going to operate uh, moving forward. Right, right. Which leads me to my next question. What do you see as far as the role for our users 
um, in the arena environment, uh, what will they play when uh, things reopen? I mean, you have your arena manager to to your uh, your actual uh, operations uh, lead hand, right down to your uh, part-time staff. I mean, how how are we going to dissect what is done by who based on the environment that we're reopening in? Well, that, this is going to be part of the challenge that every facility manager is going to be dealing with, Marty. I mean, at the end of the day, we'd like to come out and say, here's the rules. And, and maybe that's the best example I can use is that every facility that you've probably been in in your, in your lifetime has got rules posted on the, door, uh, on, the, on the wall someplace in regards to the expected level of conduct. Uh, for the users that are coming inside the facility. And most of the times they're, they're guidelines that people sometimes accept or don't accept. As we move forward to trying to deal with this one, the, the stakes are a little bit higher. So when we're going to ask people to social distance and um, uh, all the other uh, mechanical stuff that have been proven to reduce the potential for contact, then we got to expect some pushback. I mean, if you follow social media, you can see it that we've got people that buy into the science, that understand uh, and respect what uh, the uh, governing authorities are trying to put in place, and we have others that are questioning it. We should expect that when when people start to come back to our facilities, they're not all going to line up and and uh, have perfect behavior when they come into our facility. So for us trying to control that to satisfy those that are on one side of the I believe and then on the other side was going, I think this was overkill in regards to how it's going to happen. We're going to have to walk a very tight line as uh, management supervisory staff in regards to trying to control our users. We're right. going to have to deal with some of the historical stuff that we have uh, been fighting as facility operators for years. Just getting people to stop spitting in the players' benches and on the ice and every place else in the building while using the waste containers. If we, if that's the legacy that comes from COVID-19, hallelujah, because, I mean, we've been trying to get that under control forever. So we're going to have to try and find a balance in between uh, what we have a responsibility for as management uh, and supervisors and operators of these facilities and the moral uh, obligation that our users have to respect other users when, when they're in these public facilities. No, Yeah, no question. I, honestly, I mean, just my opinion, I think due to the fact we've gone through eight weeks of, of this uh, pandemic, um, I think the users themselves will be certainly more con conscious, if you will, of, you know, when they spit or where they spit, um, all those type of things that what what was the norm, we're not going to be going back to the norm, and hopefully, uh, hopefully the user groups will be more conscious, just strictly because of what we've gone through for the last eight weeks. What about what about uh, the expected shift as far as staffing at ice rinks? Where, where do you see that look? What, what do you think that's going to look like? Well, when I've been asked that question so far, my response is simply put this way, Marty: If any facility manager, supervisor, or owner is expecting the frontline operator to also be their cleaner and disinfection, it's a plan for failure. I mean, already operational staff are being pushed to the limit just to be able to perform the basic functions in a facility. Just being able to cut the ice and, ma and maintain some level of security and ongoing safety inside the facility will absorb a typical eight-hour shift for a frontline operator. For, the, for a facility manager to expect that this operator is going to clean and disinfect the building as well as operate it, 
it, it, it's impossible. So there has to be an investment of cleaning and disinfection staff, and that's got to be their primary focus. Will it be uh, supplemented by ongoing spot cleaning and disinfection by operators as time permits? That might be able to built in, be built into some operation based on the specific schedule inside the facility. But in reality, we're probably going to have to conduct more work in our closed or slow hours than we ever did before in regards to cleaning and disinfection. Like some of the challenges that I'm trying to figure out in my head, um, uh, going back to my days of managing, and that was a long time ago, is that I know my users are going to expect that the dressing rooms are going to be clean and disinfected between use. I mean, we used to open up at, at four o'clock in the afternoon, and if we got in a couple of times during an eight-hour shift to pick the garbage off the floor and make it look presentable, that was a pretty productive uh, afternoon. But, uh, but our users moving forward are going to expect a higher level of cleaning and, and disinfection. And I don't know how we're going to be able to deliver that service, especially with the, again, when we get back into the variables, some rink has four dressing rooms, some have six, some have eight, some have the ability to be able to, to put them on a rotating schedule that allows staff to get in and do, do a more comprehensive, you know, uh, catch up in regards to cleaning and disinfection. So uh, like I said, it's yeah. going to be an interesting exercise. Well, and Taking into consideration the operating costs as far as uh, employee uh, wages, um, the hourly wage. I mean, obviously, we're going to see an increase because we're going to need more bodies in the rink to be able to not only do what they've uh, done prior to uh, COVID-19, but also the cleaning and disinfecting um, uh, post for for to meet the expectations, if you will, of all user groups. So there's definitely going to be uh, a cost involved here and the question is going to be um, who's going to be paying that cost but we'll have to cross that path when we get to it. Well you've wandered into sacrilegious territory here my friend nobody wants to talk about the associated cost on an, on an increased expectation and performance for health and safety inside the facility but the reality is is that there has to be expected increased costs to meet the expectations of our users general public and potentially government and society in respect to cleaning and disinfection and there's only two places we can get it one is directly from the user and the one is the second place is the non-user and what we have to appreciate is that recreation is very important to every community structure but it's still a soft service and municipalities are going to be struggling with a lot of financial situations once the veil on this issue is lifted and they're going to try and figure out how they're going to recoup some of these costs i mean some of the numbers that are floating around in regards to lost revenues in the media uh, from recreation being closed down i mean i've seen cities posting in the first six weeks that they lost 65 million dollars in revenues from recreation. This is not going to be easily uh, recouped. And what's the immediate go-to? Oh, we got to lay staff on because everything else is hard costs. You still have to pay your hydro and still have to pay your insurance and you still have all the other related hard costs. And then the soft cost becomes the, the staffing. And we've just went through how important staff is going to be to be able to meet the other objectives. So facility managers are going to be pretty well challenged in regards to coming up with the perfect solution on how we're going to be able to uh, get to where we want to go yeah that's a, that's definitely going to be a big challenge um, as far as operating the facility what about uh, changes in the facility cleaning and disinfection uh, disinfection as far as uh, the methods uh, and the equipment I mean from 
um, what we're familiar with, the ice edgers, the uh, uh, ice resurfacers, um, right down to, um, you know, their, their um, sweepers that they use to uh, clean the floors. I mean, where do you see that uh, going and what do you see that looking like? Well, there's going to be have to be an evaluation. If they're not not going to give us more staff uh, to, to accomplish what needs to be done, then they're going to have to give us better equipment. And equipment costs money, and they're not always quick to provide those resources for us to be able to move forward. So the, the challenge that facility managers are going to have is to figure out what's wheat and what's chaff and use the wheat and because we can expect that there's going to be a lot of people banging on our doors with the next best thing for us to be able to accomplish some of these uh, some of these goals so we're going to have to evaluate the tools and when we talk about this stuff in our, our uh, building operations and maintenance course we talk about things like the magic mop that exists in a facility and the magic mop is that one mop that seems to sit in the corner of a rec facility um, in case there's a spill of some sort and it just sits there for the whole shift and staff take it and clean uh, whatever spilled if it's coffee or if it's blood and then it ends up back in the mop in the mop bail again we're going to have to take a look at, in respect to what we're using for cleaning chemicals. I mean, one of the le uh, biggest learning curves that I had, and uh, I'll, I'll admit that I was completely oblivious that uh, disinfection chemicals in Canada are, in fact, fall under the uh, the drug regulations. And so for a disinfection to be a disinfectant uh, to be acceptable in a public facility, it's got to have a, a, a provincial number that in fact says that it is recognized. So going down to the local uh, store and picking up some household cleaning chemicals to clean a public facility at times has occurred, that's no longer going to be acceptable. We're going to have to be able to deal uh, with this situation with real products, real education, and real tools. So there's lots of things that uh, are, are coming to light. Things again, uh, and I thought that, uh, I always say that I learn something new in this business every week, and I've, I've learned a couple of things every week since this thing's happened. I've had members that are, are doing what they refer to as whole room disinfection. And we've all seen it on the media. We see the people all dressed up like they're uh, going to the moon and they've got a fogging unit and they're they're spraying out of fog. Well, I've got members that have had this tool and been using it for years. Uh, so what happens is that they uh, put basically a disinfection bomb in the, in the middle of a room. They press a button and they walk out and 20 minutes later they come back and they take the piece of equipment out. And meanwhile, this uh, this unit has completely disinfected everything inside the room. Right. I was oblivious in regards to this type of equipment being available. So like I said, we're going to have to lean on each other in regards to what it is that you're doing. And the, and the biggest challenge we're going to have, Marty, and that, that's the appeal that I'd like to make here, is that the more that we can be consistent from one building to the next in regards to our attitudes, our methods, our procedures, the way that we conduct ourselves, the simpler it's going to be for us to train our users who move from building to building. It's right. when we start doing things totally different in one building than the next, then they point over the one and go, well, they don't do it over there. Why are you doing it over here? And that's right. been our downfall as an industry is that we have not been consistent in the uh, products and services that we've been providing uh, since the inception of ice rinks, I, I guess. Yeah, standard operating procedure uh, consistency. That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, so let me ask you something, Terry. Um, 
and I, I, I'm going to speak to programming. You talk about the fogging machine and that. Programming on the 55-minute count or hour rental, I don't honestly see that uh, existing in, the, in, in our, uh, our post-COVID-19. Uh, Do you? Yeah. No, I, I agree with you, Marty. I mean, uh, people are, or members are coming to us and say, okay, what, what's our world going to look like? And I, I, I'm i saying, I, I don't know. Uh, the, the challenges that we're going to have is that we've got some significant, well-organized user groups, be it minor hockey or, or figure skating, uh, and they've got their own governing organizations. And we can expect that they're going to be putting policies and procedures in place in regards to their users. The challenge that I would have as a facility manager is making sure whatever they put in place harmonizes with what we've got in place uh, in respect to facilities operations. So finding that balance moving forward is going to be quite tricky in regards to trying to satisfy our users who are going to have expectations. We're hoping that there's going to be uh, ongoing communications between these groups, but often that we're isolated from each other and we just end up finding out about what our expectations are on the day that the door opens and then there is a higher expectation in regards to what we're able to be able to deliver. So it's going to right. take some real real discussions. Sure, sure. Um, let's go back to uh, the Winterio days, the 1970 uh, single pad, maybe double pad facilities of construction back in those days. Where do you see construction moving forward as far as what what a rink under uh, under brick and mortar being constructed? What do you what do you see that looking like, Terry? Well, I think value engineering is going to come under a bright light over the next little while. I, I, I'm hoping that part of the legacy of what's going to be learned from COVID-19 is the importance investing in the right type of materials and products when building these facilities. Going into a, a facility that's got uh, stainless steel sinks, for an example, uh, and stainless steel urinals, very expensive to install, but very easy to clean and maintain if you use the right products. So there needs to be an evaluation, and, and I'm, you know, most of the listeners will uh, hear the same things that I hear on the news. So they're trying to figure out how long does it live on paper, and how long does it live on cardboard, and how long does it hang in in the air, and uh, how is it that we're going to be able to deal with it? If we don't get a hold of this right from the beginning, what we can expect is that our operators are going to be creative in regards to the chemicals they're, they're using in belief that they're going to help clean and disinfect, and it's going to end up destroying uh, a lot of the infrastructure inside the facility, which are going to be uh, uh, very expensive to replace. Sure, so sure, for yeah. an example, you, you use bleach with the wrong concentration on the wrong material once, it's completely destroyed, which makes it that much more difficult to clean and dis disinfect moving forward. And, and that, that's been proven. Go, any rink that you go into uh, or any rink that I go into, the first thing I take a look at is the taps inside the bathroom because that'll tell me how effective the cleaning program is. If the taps don't look like the deal that they were installed, Marty, that means that somewhere in their life cycle, somebody's used the wrong chemical on them and destroyed that nice shiny finish. I mean, it's it's things like uh, brand names, unfortunately, Comet and Ajax, which are very inexpensive, and people like to use them on stainless steel sinks, and they should never be used on stainless steel because it scratches it, and then you right. can't fix that. It has to be thrown out. So uh, j just the basics in regards to how to be able to clean a facility is going to be essential. 
And and it's something that we honestly kind of take for granted, thinking, okay, it's a cleaning uh, uh, cleaning solution. I can just use this solution to clean whatever tops, uh, urinals, toilets, floors, whatever, a multi-purpose, if you will. But obviously, that's not going to uh, that's not going to work well uh, based on the new construction. Uh, no doubt, new construction is going to look and be curtailed to post-COVID-19 to meet the expectations of user group groups and the public, which leads me to the next question. Where do you see, um, and I speak of ice resurfacers, Zambonis, uh, when they're finished their floods? Snow dumps. Do you honestly foresee, I'm throwing this out, what are your thoughts about uh, um, many arenas, more so than not, don't have snow dumps, and them emptying their snow tanks out in the back uh, in the back parking lot. Where do, where do you see that uh, happening and coming into play as far as the change? The the RFA and, and other organization have been raising the risk of body fluids on, on snow droppings, as we refer to them, uh, for years. We've tried to educate both the, the individuals that operate and manage these facilities, as well as uh, the users, uh, on the potential risks that are associated with the potential body fluids that can be held in in the ice that's being scraped off the surface. So we talked earlier about, you know, just training our, our users not to spit. Well, they're constantly spitting on the ice. We know, uh, you know, and I, I, I just uh, watched the I, Tonya movie and watched that poor little girl urinate on the ice because of the way her mother was and so we know people urinate on the ice we know they regurgitate on the ice we know they blow their nose on the ice and it ends up being scraped up by uh, that uh, that piece of equipment uh, and it gets uh, often dumped outside so there's two things that are going to happen one of them is that we're going to have to enhance the cleaning and disinfection of our snow pits if we're dumping inside because we know that the viruses and bacteria grow in them so we've always promoted that it will become a bigger issue and then we're going to have to be that much more conscientious in regards to leaving the snow shavings outside because we know it's a natural attraction for young people to find this uh, dump of snow, especially during warm weather, and be attracted to it. So we sure. have some members that are, are very proactive in regards to securing these areas, meaning that they're locked areas to try and keep people out of. Failing that, we're going to at least put that on our list of how are we going to deal with this post-COVID-19 because it's going to be heightened moving forward. It's a good point. Yeah, yeah, it, it, because as I said earlier, more so than not, uh, the uh, shavings from the ice are dumped outside, and in a lot of cases, they're not uh, in a uh, closed-in area, um, which is, as you mentioned, access uh, for the public to uh, be involved with. So, yeah, that's that's going to be an interesting situation as well. So, Terry, where where do you see the uh, money going? Uh, where's it Where's it going to come from to achieve, achieve all this change? Um, uh, and what will the legacy of COVID-19 look like? What do you what do you see? Well, we we've been encouraging our our members to start to put together what we refer to as a business a COVID-19 business plan, because there are going to be increased expenses, and the expectation has always been with recreation that those expenses will be self-funded, meaning that the facility manager will come up with some creative way in regards to recouping the costs that the owner is investing in them. 
So that's going to take uh, a case by case create, uh, creativity to, to determine how that is going to be met. So it'll come from leadership at the top, uh, meaning the decision makers, if it's a board of directors on a private rate, uh, or if in fact it is um, uh, owned by a municipality. As a facility manager, if I was managing today, that my, my largest concern is that I don't want to be tagged as an unhealthy, unsafe facility. Social media would kill the average facility manager if the general public believes that the building is not being properly cleaned, sanitized, and maintained. They'll put the word out to avoid that building because so-and-so didn't feel that they were meeting their personal expectations in regards to the safety uh, of, uh, of, of themselves and, and possibly the underlings that they're bringing in there. So we've got to be very conscientious of that. So uh, as we've suggested to our members, it's essential that they put forward a business plan to the decision makers when things come back to life so that they have the information in front of them to make informed decisions. At best, a facility manager is an information broker. And we've always said that. We, we don't always have the ability or capability uh, or tools available to us to make change. But what we can do is give those that are in charge of making those financial decisions uh, the information so that they can make an informed decision. If they don't have the information, they don't understand the risks, they don't understand what's happening in other facilities, then they're going to do what they think is correct. Now, if we give them that information and they move in a different direction, then I've got to just uh, feel confident that I've done my job as a facility manager in regards to what my role was in regards to providing them with that information. Sure, in the sure. end, in the end, there's going to be a need for more money. Where it comes from, um, there, there's lots of opportunities to generate revenues, but uh, we also have seen a lot of businesses under attack. So are they going to be quick to sponsor? Are they going to be quick to advertise? That time will tell. Maybe it'll be very important to them. Maybe it'll be uh, uh, not that important. So let's see what happens. Yeah, the money's got to come from somewhere. It's a question of where it's going to come from. No, no question about that, um, Terry. No question. So... Uh, with the mem with the members of Orpha, um, there's no doubt in my mind they're going to be coming back uh, to you folks, Terry, uh, being the technical director, uh, looking for guidance. And what uh, what uh, can they expect uh, as far as some of the things you've already covered off? But what else uh, can they expect uh, to get assistance with as far as dealing with these uh, challenges post COVID nineteen? The, the, the RFA, Marty, has been no different than anybody else uh, when this whole thing started. I mean, we uh, did a 360 degrees in regards to operations, just like everybody else. I mean, the cancellation of our 65th annual professional development program at the University of Guelph, it was a, a void that uh, uh, some members are going to uh, be uh, trying to fill all year long. We have no idea when we're coming back to life as an association. We, we, we don't know when we can go back to generating the revenues that we require as an organization to be able to function. However, I will suggest to you that our board of directors uh, and the ORFA management team were right out of the gate when this thing happened. We made hard decisions quick in regards to the way that we were gonna conduct business. We felt we aligned with what was happening um, from other operations and what was expected from uh, uh, our leaders and provincial government. And 
we then set out to de uh, determine how best we were going to move forward in regards to meeting the needs of our members. And, uh, and uh, as I suggested to you earlier here in, in our discussion, Marnie, the ORFA is not the seven members that work in the office in, uh, in Toronto. They're the 7,000 plus members that are in the trenches day in and day out. We knew that they were going to be looking for direction and information to be able to move forward. So immediately what we, we started to invest in was research and development and the collection of all the information that started to float around about this. And there is a lot of myths. There is a lot of misinformation. There is things that need to be sorted through. There, need, there are uh, things that are continually growing. I mean, we've all watched it. Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Do you wear a mask? Do not. Do you, do you wear gloves? Do you not wear gloves? I mean, some say yes, some say no. So we're going to have to be able to sort that out. So what we've been doing is collecting that information and we created a section on our website that we refer, refer to as a, a toolbox. And anything that's related to this event that we think that is going to be beneficial for our members to be able to access so that they can make informed decisions is going to live inside that document. The other right. thing that we've done, done as an organization is that uh, we have just invested significantly from our, our, um, our resources uh, in a new platform so that we can do online training. So we know that training is going to be important and uh, we know that our legacy programs such as the certified ice technician designation is still going to be needed. We know that refrigeration safety is still going to be a priority. All the other obligations that we had prior to COVID-19 are still going to exist. So we have to be able to get that information into our members or our new members hands so that they can become employed. And we've got to come up with creative ways to being able to deliver that. And we're investing heavily as an association to meet that need. So we know that our members are going to be looking for training on how to properly clean and, and disinfect the facility. And we've got an online training program uh, just about through the re, uh, research and development stages to get into their hands very shortly. And then we, are, we already had our, our certified building technician designation, which is um, uh, three courses to understand how to properly clean, housekeep, uh, sanitize, uh, and manage and operate these buildings. Because it's a lot more than just cleaning off the infrastructure or furniture inside a facility. We didn't even touch on how we're going to deal with the HVAC systems. How are we going to deal with the demonification systems? Because some of the information that's out there suggests that they potentially could be contributing factors to, to circulating this issue. So I, as point. a facility manager, I, I've, got to, I've got to be able to guarantee my users that I've got a, a, a cleaning and disinfection uh, system in place for this equipment. And if it's not already there, then there's another investment that's got to happen. I yeah that is a great point wow HVAC didn't didn't even didn't even think about that Terry that's a yeah and uh, some will have to think about uh, what's going on uh, with their facility presently with HVAC and uh, what uh, changes will occur and what uh, additional costs uh, they'll have to uh, incur as well Terry um, before uh, we fi finalize things here any uh, uh, thoughts anything else you want to add to uh, to the members uh, that are going to be listening to this podcast uh, you want to share with them. Well, as much as Marty that they may look to uh, the ORFA and other organizations to uh, provide them with all the answers, unfortunately, I've got to turn that mirror around and have them have a hard look in it because we're going to be relying on them um, as frontline 
operators, managers, supervisors to generate the information that we require so that we can come up with what are considered to be industry best practices. Now, the, the qualifier to that, Marty, is that it's important for everybody to understand that the association's got no authority to tell anybody how they're going to operate their buildings. Our job is to collect that information, collect that data, provide it to our members as a measuring stick in regards to the way that they're operating their facilities. In the end, they get to operate any way they want. They need to interpret the legislation, regulations, codes, acts, whatever is out there specific to their operation. Unfortunately, where our information comes into play is when there's litigation. And then what happens is plaintiff lawyers or the courts take a look at what we put out as an organization as industry best practices. And what an industry best practice is, it's the gray area between the black and white, meaning that regulation says uh, basically you'll keep the facility clean and disinfected. And then we come along and say, to do that, you should be doing A, B, C, D, and E. And, or at least considering that. And so at right, that point, right. you decide if you can afford to do it, if it makes uh, sense for your operation. And if past uh, history uh, suggests, we often take the path of least financial resistance. And some of us drive what I refer to without a seatbelt on, even though we should know we should have it on. They don't have it on in regards to best practices, hoping that they're never going to be called into question. So it, it's it's important that the next generation of facility managers understands what's at risk and uh, act appropriately. Yeah, great point. You know, at the end of the day, um, it, we are going to be better off, uh, both as operators, uh, arena managers, and the user group uh, putting into play uh, the suggestion, if you will, of uh, post-COVID-19 uh, cleaning and the changes that are going to occur, I, I, it's a positive, uh, no question. The question is whether um, these facilities uh, all, and you mentioned earlier, um, you know, in a municipality such as, I'll use Toronto for example, is it consistent across the board? And that'll be the biggest challenge of, for me and that, I'll, that I can see. And um, yeah. but hopefully, hopefully it um, it moves through uh, as smooth as it possibly can with the assistance and uh, suggestions from uh, from uh, Orfa and and uh, the people, the seven people that work at the at the Orfa as well. So, well, I, I have to admit, Marty, I chuckled this week when somebody called me up and we were having a very casual conversation, and one of their comments was, "Thank God this is almost over." And I chuckled. I said. This isn't almost over. It hasn't even started yet in regards to what the outcomes are going to be from this situation. The heavy lifting hasn't even started. The last, the first chapter in this book hasn't been written, let alone the last chapter. This is going to be years for us to be able to work through the way that we, in fact, are going to function. And I always like to point out that as an industry, we've had some real bad situations that have had lasting legacies that we've had to adopt in regards to the way we're going to conduct business. And COVID-19 is the next one that we're, that's going to be around forever. Facility managers that are working today and, and going through this crisis on, before they retire, they're going to be sitting back in a lounger with a the good stiff drink, and they're going to remember how things were before March 2020. And they're going to look back at it fondly and wish for those days because they were simple, they were um, 
easy to maintain. Moving forward, uh, the challenges that we're going to have to face collectively as an industry is going to be at times overwhelming. But we will. That old analogy, how to eat an elephant one bite at a time, and we'll figure out how we're going to operate. Uh, we'll come through this, but you're right. We're going to come through as, as a different organization, a different industry, and different attitudes in regards to uh, the importance of recreation inside uh, every community. So true, Terry. So true. But you know what? It's definitely going to be a positive on the other side um, uh, for positive change, which uh, which is a good thing. And uh, we're, we're all in it together and uh, to uh, take our industry uh, and continue to grow it and uh, collaborate amongst the professionals within the industry to be able to come up with and share uh, the best, uh, if you will, uh, operating procedures um, post-COVID-19. So it's great that uh, we're blessed uh, to have you, Terry, from uh, the Ontario Recreation Facilities Association to kind of lead, if you will, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying that, being the technical uh, director, uh, to give some guidance uh, and suggestions uh, moving forward. Well, Terry, I just want to say thank you so kindly for taking the time today. I uh, greatly appreciate it on behalf of Zamboni and to ask the Zamboni experts. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, to you and with you and getting some great insight on uh, what's coming down uh, for change uh, post uh, COVID-19. Uh, thank you so kindly for your time. Marty, thank you for the opportunity. Always glad to work with you guys. God bless. Take care, my friend. Yes, you too.